You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. I'm glad you're here this morning and uh, hope you've got your copy of God's Word and you're there in Ephesians chapter 1. Now, church, let me share with you. We had two very dear saints who meant so much to this church that passed away this week. One was Miss Jean Pulliam. Her funeral is going to be Wednesday. And uh, Dick Quinn passed away and his funeral is going to be Friday, Thursday. Going to be Thursday. So, Remember those families, and um, let me do something now that's going to be fun to do. I'm going to call the Lieutenant Colonel. Lieutenant Colonel, you go, come on down. This is Mr. Milton Ray. I called him Lieutenant Colonel because that was his, that was his uh, rank in World War II. So he was in the South Pacific. I wasn't planning on that. <laughs> well, listen, today, today is his 98th birthday, 98. So look, there you go. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> I'm overwhelmed. Uh. He's well, or- it doesn't surprise me one bit because some years ago, I decided I am God's favorite <laughs> <laughs> because he died for me. Yeah, Amen. that's right. And Amen. if you don't feel the same way, you better think about it. Yeah. Amen. Amen. There's your sermon, but you're not going home now, so <laughs> you, be, you be seated. He's got 16, did you say 16 family members here? Uh, 14. 14 or so. Hey, well, now listen, you give me books all the time. You know, I'm going to give him a book. Guess what it's about? Winston Churchill. That's Franklin and Winston. I don't know if you've read that. No, I have not. He he just gave me a book on Genghis Khan. So I'm giving you back that one. And this one. This is um, a book on Genesis written by Henry Morris III. He had three books. He put them all in one volume. Uh Um, I serve on his board. He's now... In heaven with the Lord. I preached his funeral. Great guy. I miss him. But he did this. This was one of the last things that he did. Mm-hmm. And um, it's wow, that's gold. Brave. It's gold. It's still wrapped up. But well, I give thank you that. You. Oh, thank Good. You. Now I'm in your debt. You are. <laughs> I, I, like, I like it that way. Amen. Amen. Happy birthday. Well, I appreciate it. Thank God you bless so you. Much. Good. I, I was preaching Friday night. Y'all were making fun of me Friday night, but I was preaching somewhere Friday night. And uh, I was preaching at a pastor's conference. In fact, it was the first one at Maysville, Georgia. And um, I, I preached Friday night and Saturday morning. And in the middle of the song service, 
this little boy who, who, who uh, had special needs, he had downs, he got away from somebody. And he came busting through the door, and he ran all the way over, and he sat down on the front row. And I thought, well, there you go. You got away, buddy. I'm rooting for you. Uh, I don't know who was holding on to you, but you got away. So I kept expecting somebody to came in, but it was the singer, a husband and a wife. It was their son. So um, uh, in, in just a little bit, the little boy just sat there. It's just as perfect as he could. He giggled at something. I don't know what it was. Uh, and one of the men in the, just slipped over there by him, just put his arm around him. Well, I want you to know in a little bit, that little boy came up. He just got up out of the seat, came right down to the altar, got on his knees, and he laid his head down in his hands like this. Now, I thought to myself, now that just didn't pop into his head. He learned that from somebody. Probably that mom and dad standing up there singing. He learned that somewhere. And I thought, here is a little boy, especially six years of age, who knows more what to do with an altar than most Baptist adults. That's your moment for the day. Anyway, that could be why when I gave the invitation that night, it was, they had so many pastors and pastors' wives at the altar, they had to start kneeling back up the aisles. So God blessed. It was great to be there. And um, whenever I preach to preachers, I, and I did it Friday night, Saturday morning, so I'm pumped up. So take your copy of God's Word now and look with me. When I pastored at uh, First Baptist Church of Dallas, you could walk out the front door of First Dallas and just down the street, and there was the original Neiman Marcus. Uh, great store, you know, I think I went in there one time and decided that just was not the place I could go. And um, we went in there and walked out, but we would walk by it and you would see it. And everybody in Dallas shopped at Needless Markup, Neiman Marcus. And um, there was a lady in Dallas who shopped there on a regular basis. They even had a restaurant in there you could go and eat. And uh, she shopped in there. And one day she just got really put out with Stanley Marcus. Now, Stanley Marcus lived in Dallas. He, he was the guy that opened up. Neiman Marcus, and uh, she was going to write him a letter about his employees. She didn't feel like that they treated their employees well enough. So she sat down, she wrote a letter, Dear Mr. Marcus, I've been receiving beautiful and expensive brochures. Have y'all ever gotten one of those? One of the Neiman Marcus brochures? Well, we got off on somebody's mailing list. We got it for a while, and it's just wild what you can buy out of Neiman Marcus. She says, I've been receiving beautiful and expensive brochures from you at regu regular intervals. It occurs to me that you might divert a little of the, that fortune you must be spending for these advertisement materials to raise the salaries of your more faithful employees. For instance, there's an unassuming, plainly dressed little man on the second floor who always treats me with extreme courtesy when I visit your store and gently persuades me to buy something I didn't really want to buy. Why don't you pay him a little more? He looks as though he could use it. Yours truly, Miss W.S. Well, she got a letter back, Dear Madam. Your letter impressed us so deeply that we called a director's meeting immediately and thanks solely to your own solicitude, voted my father a $20 a week raise, yours truly, Neiman Marcus, uh, Stanley Marcus. 
Uh, sometimes you feel that way, don't you? Um, Shakespeare, I, I love Macbeth and I love King Lear. And uh, Shakespeare puts on the lips of King Lear. King Lear has three daughters. And uh, the two older daughters are so unthankful, so ungrateful, so unappreciative, so rude. It's that youngest daughter that really figures into the, into the play. But these two older daughters, and on the lips of Shakespeare, uh, on the lips of King Lear, Shakespeare puts these words, how sharper than a serpent's tooth is to have a thankless child. I wonder if God ever thinks that about us. I wonder if God ever thinks about all the blessings that he's just poured out on us in our life, and there is very little thanksgiving back to God for all that he gives us. You know, I've thought about that all week, and I've thought about the fact that this year, this past year, we finished a million dollars over budget. We did that last year. I wonder if it's happening to the point to where we really are not as grateful to God as we should be. Well, that's what Paul's going to talk about. In Ephesians chapter 1, uh, you come to two sections in this first chapter. One all deals with praise. There's just this eruption of praise. If you look at the chapter, verse 1 and 2 is just the simple signature. Uh, they would put it at the beginning of a letter in the first Christian century instead of at the end of a letter. Uh, but when he gets to verse 3, he just erupts in this expression of praise to God and this doxology of just worship. And I've shared with you that verse 3 through verse 14 is one single sentence, a long, long sentence, the longest sentence in the Bible, 200 words in the Greek. But now when you come to verse 15, he's going to start in a prayer of thanksgiving. And verse 15 through verse 23 is about the second longest sentence in the Word of God. It's 169 words, one single sentence, verse 15 through 23, and every bit of it is dominated by the theme of thanksgiving to God for the salvation that He's given to us. Now, I want you just to notice that and watch that because it, it, it gives to us a pattern of prayer and it gives, to us, um, it gives to us the pattern of thought that Paul has in the very first chapter of, uh, of Ephesians and what's going to come through the rest of the letter. Now, if you look at this and you think about it, we really do live in a culture right now that is no longer appreciative or thankful very much at all. We have very little manners, very little uh, courtesy anymore. It's very difficult. It stands out. It's just stark when you see it happen because it just doesn't happen like it used to. There was a time that American culture used to be a Christian culture. Whether people went to church or not, whether they were Christian or not, it was just the, the, the foundation for 200 years at least, if not more, the foundation was that of a Christian culture. People were not short, people were not rude, people were not discourteous. On the whole, people were very kind, nice, and uh, extremely thankful and expressed their appreciation. We've lost that in this, in this culture to our day. 
uh, it's kind of gone by the wayside. And so it's unusual to come and to think about a sentence this long that is all based on one single verb in verse 16, I do not cease giving thanks. Now that little verb right there, it's one word in the Greek, cease giving thanks or do not cease giving thanks. In the Greek, it's, it's the central verb of this whole part of this chapter from 15 to 23. The whole thing is replete with this concept that I don't stop giving God thanks. Look, for you, constantly mentioning you in my prayers, calling your name over and over and over again. This is just a doxology of praise that flows into a prayer of thanksgiving. Now, listen, let me, let me just tell you something about this. Uh, you have to stop and remember, where is Paul when he writes this? He's in prison. He's in a Roman prison uh, which was like a, a little house that was no bigger than just a single room. And not only was he there, by the way, let me just let you in on something. Um, you had to pay for that as a Roman prisoner. Uh, if they put you in prison, you had to pay. They did not feed you three meals a day. If you got food, somebody from the outside had to bring it in. You had to pay for that. Or you just starved. And Rome could care less. It didn't matter to them. Nobody was going to hold them to being politically correct or caring for people. Uh, you, you had to pay for all of that. And if you ate, somebody brought it to you. Well, he's there not only in prison, but he's chained up. You can read this in Philippians chapter 1. He's chained up, and he's not just chained up to average soldiers. He is chained up to the elite forces called the Praetorian Guard. He's chained to a soldier that's on this side. He's chained to a soldier on that side of him. They change, they change this every four hours. But I want you just to, so I don't, I don't really know if Paul was actually writing this. Most likely he had an amanuensis. He couldn't, he's chained. He couldn't, you know, move around and write. So he most likely had an amanuensis. This amanuensis sat there and would write precisely the verb tense, uh, but, you know, the gender, everything about it, the declension, everything about it, he would write it precisely as Paul spoke it. That's the inspiration of Scripture. That's why we have an inerrant text. And so as he's writing this, Paul's just introducing himself. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you, peace to you, our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. And it's all, all of a sudden, he just all of a sudden blurts out, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And these guards that are chained to him must look at him like this. What is going on? He just erupts in praise. Why? Because there is this devotion to God for God's salvation in his life. That God's Listen, God was so devoted to him to save him that there is this devotion to give back praise to God. Now, out of that praise flows thanksgiving. Do you want to know? You want to say, well, you know, I'm a person that praises God. Well, then tell me about your thanksgiving. Because out of your praise is going to come your thanksgiving. And out of your devotion to God is going to come your praise. 
So if there is no devotion to God, you really are not going to praise God much at all. And if there's no praise in your heart, I can tell you this, there's going to be no thanksgiving, but you start praising God and you will not stop giving thanks to God for all he's done. Now look at the pattern of prayer here. How do I pray? I always come before God first with praise for who he is. I praise you, God, that you're the God of salvation. I praise you that you are God Almighty, that you are all sovereign, that you are all sufficient, that you provide. You are, you are Jehovah, our provider. And then out of praising God for who he is, I then begin to thank God for what he's done. Thank you, Lord, that you're moving in my life. Thank you, God, that you're, you're caring for my life. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you're blessing my life. So you begin with this praise, and then you come out of that praise with thanksgiving. Now, that's a pattern of prayer. That's how we should pray. You begin that way. And so that's what Paul has done. He begins with praise. But now out of that is going to flow this thanksgiving. Thanksgiving always flows out of praise, and praise is a response to the devotion of God for his salvation. Now I'm going to show you two things. Y'all hear that? It's raining. There's no football on today. So sit back. You don't need to go anywhere. So let's look at this. Two things. Number one, I want you to see that he's going to come and he's going to give thanksgiving. Now, uh, for, for, for two things here specifically. I, I want to tell you, uh, folks, first, I just had a couple of folks out in the, in, the, in the hallway talking to me about this. You have no idea the hours I spent this week in this, in this trying to figure out the grammar. There is... There are two purpose clauses here. And out of these two purpose clauses, you're going to see the purpose of his prayer. And out of that, out of this second purpose clause, are going to come these three interrogative pronouns. And out of that third interrogative pronoun are going to come four participles. Now, did you get that? I just want you to know I studied this thing this week. And it is a difficult passage to put together, but when you see it, it just kind of all makes sense. Now let's go. He's going to give thanks, or thanks is going to come out of Paul thanking God for the outworking of salvation in our lives. There is an outworking of salvation that he talks about. Look back up at verse 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. So he comes to that first thing of the outworking. This faith is the outworking of God's salvation in our lives. We come and listen. He says, I've heard of the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he writes these Ephesians and he says, what I'm hearing is this, is you've got a faith that is actively doing something. 
There are people that are being saved, people that are coming to Jesus Christ. And he says, so there's evangelism right there. He says, this is coming out of your faith. You have a faith in Jesus Christ, and you're not ashamed to share the gospel with someone. So out of your life is coming this evangelism and also prayer. You're praying. You're a praying people. In fact, Paul's going to spend a lot of time in Ephesians praying. He says, you are folks that uh, believe in prayer. I hear of your faith in Jesus, and it's being expressed in prayer. And not only in prayer, but in generosity. Who do you think was meeting the needs of Paul while he was in prison? Church at Philippi, church at Ephesus, a number of these churches, they were sending help to Paul uh, because he was in prison waiting to go and appear before Caesar. Uh, and, and so while he waited, he had to pay for his expenses. They're giving. There's a generosity that is there. Not only that, there's fellowship that's taking place. He's writing to the fellowship of this church. He's writing to these folks who, um, uh, who are gathering together faithfully in a very difficult culture and city where they are the great minority. They live under the darkness of the occult. In Ephesus, they live under the shadow of the cult of Diana, um, of the Ephesians. They live under all of this pagan pressure, and yet their faith is active. They are being light in a very, very dark place, in a very, very dark time. And so he writes and he says, listen, this is the outworking of your faith. That salvation in your life is finding expression this way. Now, all of those things I just mentioned, discipleship, fellowship, prayer, generosity, uh, evangelism, all of that happens to be our, what? Our values as a church. Those are our values. And he sees those same values in the church there at Ephesus. So he says, I too, for this reason, having heard of the faith of the Lord Jesus, which exists among you. I see that this work is going in. And then look at the second thing that he says here. He comes and he says, the second way that I see the outworking of your faith and your salvation is that you love all the saints. You love everybody in the fellowship. You love everybody who is in the church of Jesus Christ. He says, you express your salvation in loving each other. Now, I want to just quote James. If, you, if you've got a Bible, just go to your right for just a few pages, get past Hebrews, and you come to James chapter 2. And you remember in James chapter 2, James talks about those that were in need that came into the congregation. You remember that? He says, here you are. You're, you're doing pretty well. You, you, uh, uh, you've got all kind of fine clothes on and a gold ring, and you're dressed up nice and here comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and he doesn't smell real good. And so you look at him, and you tell him, look, you just sit over there. Just sit over there where I don't smell you. Just sit over there where I don't have to look at you. But you're okay. You just go sit over there. And so after the service, the man comes to you and says, well, I'm, I'm hungry. Uh, can you do anything? And you, you look at him and say, well, God bless you, buddy. I hope God will fill you up. James says, have you lost your mind? What a, what, what a thing to do. Why don't you get him something to eat? Why don't you let him sit down there by you? The guy comes up and he says, I'm really cold and I'm sleeping out on the street. Um, you, you don't have anything. Well, you know, God bless you. I hope you'll get warm. Maybe God will warm you up. 
And, and James says to the church, listen to what he says in verse 18. He said, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. He says, you have faith. That's great. Listen to this. He says this right after that. You believe that God is one big deal. Well, that's in my Bible. Big deal. The demons also believe in shudder. That's well, I, I know there's a God. That doesn't mean you're saved. But you are willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. He says, get the guy something to eat. Give the guy a place to sit. Give the guy a blanket or a jacket or something like that. He's talking about expressing love. He's saying, show your love to others. He says that's what the church at Ephesus was doing is the outworking of their salvation is that they were constantly putting their faith in Jesus Christ and then they were turning around and they were loving each other in the body of Christ. Do you love each other? Do you church? Do you really love each other in this place? Do you even know each other in this place? Do you ever stop to even speak to one another when you're in this place? You know, that should be the outworking of the fact that you are saved. We should all be able to look at each other and say, yep, I know he's saved because that guy operates by faith. And not only that, he is loving on people around this church all the time. I'd hope when I said that, y'all would have all said in unison, yes, we do. I hope you love one another. Well... We're supposed to love. We're supposed to have faith in Christ in a world that is anti-Jesus Christ. You can talk about God all day long. People get on TV all the time. Well, I just thank God. Well, everybody's comfortable with that. Let me tell you what they get really weirded out about. I want to thank Jesus Christ. That's what they're not comfortable with. Because when you say God, you could be talking about anything in the world. But when you specifically name Jesus Christ, listen, we're to have faith in Jesus Christ and we're to love each other because of the outworking of God's salvation in our lives. We are to do that and, and the world is to be able to see that that is who our God is even though this community and this country and the Western world is anti-Christ. It is anti-God. Well, if that's so, then God help me to live more like Jesus. At least, at least if they go to hell, let them say, I saw one full example, so I'm going here on my own. I did see an example of it. That ought to be our prayer. That's what Paul is talking about. And he says, I give thanks to God because I've got a church and that church is living by faith and it is loving each other. Now that is thanking God for the outward expression of salvation. Now he's going to come in verse uh, 18 and he's going to talk about this inward, this inward work of salvation. Verse 17 is a, is a purpose clause there that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom. He says, I really pray that God would give you the wisdom to figure this out. That the outworking of your salvation is to be that you live by faith and you love each other. 
That's what he means by that. The purpose of my prayer is this, is that is what will happen. Now he comes to the second purpose clause in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That is, I am praying uh, that the eyes of your heart, and you say, well, no, wait a minute, what is that? The eyes of my heart. That's weird sounding. What all that is, is that you come to an understanding. We, we use terminology like that all the time. Listen, my heart loves you. My heart, you know, wants to hold you. My heart, isn't that, you think you see a little heart jump out and grab some, you know, my heart wants to, you know, it's that. The eyes of my heart, the, my understanding, my internal understanding. I can grasp this. I can see this. I can understand this. This makes sense to me. I can get a grip on this. He says, I'm praying that in your mind, that your mind will get a hold of this, that your mind will grasp what I'm about to say so that you will know what is the hope of your calling. You see that? That's number one. What, are, what is, what are, what is. These three interrogative pronouns here. What is the hope of your calling? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And in verse 19, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us? Those three things that he's going to talk about right there. Uh, he says, listen, you need to know that salvation is not something that just happens and that's it. You know, salvation is an event that happens. Yes, there is a moment when you're saved. But the event of salvation has a continuing work in your life. So many of us think, well, all I need to do is just walk down an aisle, fill out a card. That's it. I'm saved. No, oh, Lord, have mercy. Please don't think that. I hate for you going to hell thinking that you were saved because there's more to salvation than you walking an aisle and signing a card. You did that when you got married. Amen. Didn't you walk down an aisle when you got married? Sure you did. Didn't, you, didn't when the preacher got through marrying you, I'd take him over and say, put your name right there on this government license. I got God satisfied and I less satisfy Uncle Sam. Put your name on the license and you'll sign the license. It, at that point, do you turn around to your wife and say, glad that's done. Now we got that over with. There's nothing else to do. Is that it? Was that it when you got married? Oh, Lord, no. What was that? That was the beginning. <laughs> That was just the beginning. When you walk down an aisle and give your life to Jesus Christ publicly, whether you sign a card or not, listen, let me tell you something. That's the beginning. God is continuously working out his salvation in your life. And so he comes and he says, what is the hope of his calling? He says, I want you to know on the inside, this is what God is doing. He is enlightening your mind to the fact that there is a calling on your life. It's the hope of his calling. Now, you can go back to verse 4, back to where God, back to where Paul talks about uh, what we would call election, his choice of you, his choosing you. And his choice of you was more than God standing up there going, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. I'll take this one. Uh, that one's lost. I'll take this one. That one can go. I'll take this one. Send that one on to hell. If, if that's your thought about election, let me tell you something. That is the easy way to think of election. It's the lazy way to think of it. It is far more than that. Part of what is wrapped up in your election 
is that God in his calling you has called you to give you a purpose in life. There is something for you to do. God didn't just save you. God saved you, but now he has called you to carry out a ministry in your life. That's why last week we gave you that booklet on dedication to look at all the things that you can do here in this place, all the places you can serve, all the serving that you can do in this place. God saved you, and when he saved you, he has a plan for your life. And it's to do something more than sit on the backside and just play with a remote control all day. Amen. Look, I'm going to start amen in myself up here. Amen. Than to just sit there and do nothing. God has a plan for you. He has a purpose for you. You are here for a reason. You're saved for a reason. And Paul is saying, I pray that your mind will put the pieces together that your eye, the mind, eyes of your mind will be enlightened so that you can see, wow, there is something God has saved me for. And let me tell you something. He didn't just save you to get you out of hell. He saved you to get you, him into you. Okay. Preachers are fun to preach to. They'll holler at you, you know. Let me give you the second thing, and the second thing is this. Look at this. He says, and to know what is the surpassing greatness, verse 19, of his power toward us. What is the surpassing? I'm sorry, I jumped too far. Look back up in verse 18. The hope of his calling. Now, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Now, look at that. Read it carefully. What are, that's the second what right there. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, we've read, and I've shared with you, we have an inheritance in heaven. But now what Paul is talking about here is not our inheritance in heaven. What Paul is talking about is that you are the inheritance God gets because of the death of Jesus Christ. That is, when Jesus Christ died... He went to the Father, and when you were saved, he brought you up before the Father and said, Father, in my death, I have left you something. Here's Mac Brunson right here. here. Here he is. I have left you this inheritance. That's true of every one of you that know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You're God's inheritance. Now, you said, well, I, that's, a, that's a real thought. Well, we've talked about this. You are God's inheritance, and what do you do with an inheritance? You want to use it. Uh, just a few months back, I was in uh, Florida going to speak somewhere, and um, uh, I was speaking at 1122. That's where I was. And uh, my son called and said, now, listen, Daddy, bring the shotguns. We're going to go skeet shooting. And uh, I said, okay, I'll, I'll bring them. So I was around the house finding, you know, a couple of shotguns. And Debbie, Debbie comes in. And she says, why don't you give those things to those boys? Just go on and give it to them. When you die, you're going to leave it to them? So I had a Beretta. This Beretta was given to me. It's far more expensive than I would have ever paid for a gun because my wife would find out if I did. But, but um, I would have never spent this kind of money on a gun. But I had a man in Dallas. He was in the church, and he wanted to buy me an over-and-under shotgun. And 
He bought a Beretta and he had an Italian gun maker there and he fit that gun to me. And I, you know, it's great. I love it. Wonderful hunting gun. Trey loves it. And she said, just go on and give that to him. When you die, it's going to be his. And just go on and give that rifle. I have a Marlin 3030. Just go on and give that rifle to uh, Wills. Uh, He wants to go hunting with his brother. Just give those things to him. So I got the guns together and I go to put them in the car and I'm walking to the car and I'm thinking, my, my wife's getting me to clear out my stuff now. Uh, she's thinking about my death. So I took them the guns and I gave it to them. Oh, you know, they lit up like a Christmas tree. I said, here, your mama says when I die, you're going to get it anyway. So here it is. Take it. I hope you enjoy it, you know, kind of deal. So, you know, you know what those boys are doing? They're enjoying what I've left them while I'm alive. And does that make you happy? No. <laughs> uh, because all I do is worry, have they gotten a scratch on my Beretta? You know, that's all I, but, but they are enjoying, you know what they're doing? They're putting to use their inheritance. Now, my daddy left me, one of the things my daddy left is he left me a gun, a pistol. And it was a pistol, it's a German pistol taken off of an SS officer. My dad, the best I could get the story out of him, you had to pull stuff out of these guys. He had captured an SS officer. He got the short sword that they all had. He got various things. He got his lamb lamb skin vest. You know, he said, I took it off of him. I let him be cold. And he said, I put it on. And um, he said, I, I, I searched him. And he said he had a pistol down around his ankle, just a small pistol. But that pistol is all in pieces. I've got it in a bag. Now, it's in a bag and it's in my closet. It's saved. And it's saved. But it is useless. I can't use it. It's all in pieces. I've got to get a gunsmith somewhere that can put together this 1940. 544, 43 German pistol uh, because it's just in pieces. And I want to tell you something. So much of our lives is lived just falling apart into pieces so that God gets our inheritance, us, and he says, I can't use you. So let me put the pieces together so that I can get you into a place where I can. Some of you think God can't use me. That's what Paul is telling you here. I'm telling you, yes, he can. God wants to. God desires to do that. That's what he's called. He's called you with a purpose. And now he comes and he wants to use you. And the third thing is this, verse 19. What is the surpassing greatness of the power toward us? His power toward us. Can he do that? Can he put my life back together? Can he use me? Would I be beneficial in the kingdom of God? Does he have that kind of power? And Paul answers the question with these four participles. He says, if you want to know about the power of God, look at the life of Jesus Christ. Look at what he's done with Christ. Verse 20, which he brought about in Christ. What what did he bring about? Strength, his strength, his power, his might. Now, four participles raising him. He raised him from the dead. Do you understand that when Jesus Christ died, 
the power of God moved in that situation even before the resurrection. Do y'all remember in the Old Testament, David saying, he will not suffer his holy one to undergo decay. You wonder what is David prophesying? David was a prophet, by the way. We're told that in Acts. He, was a pro- he prophesied and he said this, that when Jesus Christ died, decomposition and decay starts immediately when you die. Starts immediately. And um, here, when Jesus Christ died and they took him down from the cross, here comes the active agents of Satan himself, decomposition and decay. And God the Father stands over God the Son and he says, stop right there. You're not going to lay a finger on my son. No decomposition, no decay for three days. That whole process is kept at bay by the power of God. The second thing is, is that the power of God went into that stone tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and to that son, to Jesus, of whom he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He leans down and whispers, and he must say to him, arise, my beloved. And Jesus gets up. He comes up through those burial clothes, and God gives to him, listen, he gives to him resurrected life, not resuscitated life, not what Jesus did with the son of the widow of Nain, not what Jesus did with Jairus' daughter, not what Jesus did with Lazarus. They would all die again. Jesus is given from the Father. He is given eternal life, immortal, incorruptible, invincible He is given that kind of life so that the one who died was resurrected. And we become, listen, he says, you are, that's the first fruits. He says, in Jesus Christ, you see in him, that is exactly what is going to happen to you. You're going to be brought up incorruptible, even out of the decay and decomposition. And you say, I have people ask me all the time, you know, about... um, Cremation, you know, what, what, is it okay for a Christian to be cremated? He's going to, I said, listen, if he brought you up out the dust to begin with, bringing you up out of ashes ain't going to be anything new. Now, personally, I don't like to think about it, but hey, I don't know too many people who do. Well, that's exactly what he says. He says he has raised him from the dead. Now, look at this seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. That is, Jesus Christ has now resumed his spot that had been reserved for him when he emptied himself of all the royalty and of all the benefit of being in heaven. He emptied himself. He took on the form of man. Now, listen, he never emptied himself of his godhood. He was fully God and fully man, But God now has reserved for him that place right where he was there in heaven. He's gone back there. He's gone back to where he sits at the right hand of the throne of the Father. And look at this. Listen to what it says. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name uh, that is named. And not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, do you know what those rulers and authorities and dominions, all of that? Look over to chapter 6 of Ephesians and verse 12. 
Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. And this is where we read, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. In other words, what he says there is that God now has placed him at his right hand, seated him there in the heavenlies, far above all of these demons, all of these devils, all of these powers, all of these dominions in this age and in the age to come. He is above them all. Anything in the spiritual dimension, Christ is above it all. By the way, listen, I told you the cowboys aren't on today, so there's nothing to do. Watch this. Let me just show you this in chapter 2. Just, it just popped in my head. Watch this. Listen to what he's going When he raised him up and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the ages to come. Now, I'm in chapter 2, and I'm in verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you know what he's just said? That he has raised him up and seated him there, and that Jesus Christ is going to put on display every devil, every demon that there ever has been in hell, and we, he's going to walk us through all of that. It, it's the walk of the hall of shame. All of these demons, he's going to walk us through there, and we're going to go through, and we're going to just look at every one of those demons and go like this. You thought you had me, didn't you? Now, folks, I, I just have to say, if y'all were Pentecostal, y'all be out in the floor by now. That's a good word. That's what he's going to do with all of these. Number three, look at this. In verse 22, he put all things in subjection under his feet. Subjecting all things under his feet. I went through that last week or, or week before last where everything in this world, everything in this universe is going to come right up under the feet of Jesus Christ. And the fourth thing is this. Let me hasten to get, get, get through with this. As you come up to this, look at this. And he gave him as head over all things to the church. He is head of all things in the church. That means the preacher does not rule the church. Amen? It also means you don't rule the church. Or the budget. Or the deacons. Or this committee or that committee. It means that Jesus Christ rules the church. This is his church. And he is the head of the church. And Paul says, if you could just catch this, if you could catch it, if you could see it, you would begin to praise God, and out of that praise would come a thanksgiving. Have you ever seen, uh, now I've forgotten the name of it, a stereogram? You know what a stereogram is? Guys, do y'all still have that picture? They got it for me. There, that's a stereogram. Um, they say that has a picture in there. Now, all I see is a bunch of color. The first time I ever saw these, I remember seeing a couple of these in, in, in you know, stores. You'd be in a store and you'd see these on picture. I just think, you know, that's a throwback to the 60s. That's something that came out of somebody's LSD experience in the 60s. Uh, it makes no, it's just color and random geometric design there. And I had a guy, he said, no, 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 no. He said, there's a picture in there. There's a picture in that. I said, oh, there's not a picture in that. He says, yeah, just stare at it. If you stare at it, the picture, you'll see the picture will come out. Well, I stared at it and nothing happened. I said, there's no picture in here. You're just woofing me. 
um, you, this is just some joke. So I kind of walked on and, um, you know, I don't know where or how, but this came up in my, I was in my office and one of these things came up again and I'm looking at it, looking at it, look at it. And somebody walks in my office and they said, oh, you've got a, whatever they call them, stereogram or whatever you call them. And I said, you know, tell me about this. And they said, well, if you look at it long enough, you'll see a picture. I said, if you look at it long enough, it'll blind you. I said, but I've looked at this thing. And they said, well, you got to get to one spot. Just look in one single spot. And if you get in that one spot and just kind of get close to it and pull back, you'll begin to see it. So I'm sitting there like this. I'm looking at one spot and I'm going close back. I said, this is a joke. This is just a joke. I just can't let things whip me. So I get in the office another day. Nobody's around. I take that thing and I pray over it. I said, God, this thing cannot defeat me. I just want to see. They tell me there are pyramids in this thing. I want to see. So I'm looking at it and I'm looking at it. I'm staring at it in one place. And I, I get close. I move it this way. I move it that way. I hold my head still. Just, you know, kind of all of this. And all of a sudden, bam, right there. I caught a picture of a pyramid. But then it's gone. And I thought, oh, for real, is that thing in there? I want to see it again. Boy, then it really does get you hyped up. And you're just looking and looking and looking at that thing. And whoop, pow, one more time. You catch a glimpse of it. There are two. There are three pyramids in that thing. Well, that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart will be illumined so that you will see the power of God in Christ that is at work in your life so that it can work its way out in faith and in love of the brethren. Let's stand and pray. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.